Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Thank you, guys. Uh, that's from the, the Mason ladies and accompanied by Mr. Chris. And so uh, it is good to have a family leading us uh, as we begin to look at the family from God's word. It is uh, a privilege and honor to be in the pulpit today for Alan, Alan and Tracy are away on vacation, and so be in prayer for them that they'll get a little R&R. Uh, obviously, Alan's been under a lot of stress as he's tried to lead us well through these difficult days and these trying circumstances. I think he's done a phenomenal job, and we're grateful to have him as our pastor, and so uh, we do pray that he does get refreshed and relaxed over the next couple of days. He'll be back in the pulpit next Sunday as we begin our new schedule and our new times, and so if that's new to you, you'll need to check out our website and see about those uh, new and exciting things that will be taking place on next Sunday. But for this Sunday, we do want to look in God's Word and see what the Lord has for us this morning. And so my question to begin today is, how do you define family? How do you articulate the purpose of family? You see, there's going to be lots of, of notes and, and um insight on the screen behind me uh, to maybe help you take notes this morning. But my goal and my objective this morning is to help us get our minds as individuals and as a church around what and how we should help and aid families in this diabolical age that we live in. And so my question is, does media impact the way you view family? And so many of you see there on the screen, there's a picture of modern family. And some of you would be like, that's trash. Why would you ever put that up on a screen in the Lord's house? Some of you are like, that's my favorite show. And so we are all over the page when it comes to our understanding of what family is. And so many in our day and age would say that, that media depicts what is actually happening. Others of us would say, no, media drives our perception and our reality. And so that's a, an unending debate, really. But my, my thought to, to get us going this morning is, do TV, do movies, do books impact your view of family more than the Word of God? I love TV. I've never watched Modern Family but there are lots of TV shows that I do watch that depict the family and they almost always depict the family in a light that is not seen in God's word. And so even as devout Christians, we must return to the word of God often, even if we know the word of God is our anchor, is our true beacon of light. And so this morning, I want us to look at how God connects the family to Christ. And so I'm using an outline called Family Ties. Some of you remember that 80s show um, about the family. And so I'm taking a play on ties as our four points this morning. And so our first point is truth. What does the Bible say about the family? 
Turn with me to Genesis 1. We're going to be all over God's Word this morning, so there's no scripture on the screens this morning because you need to bring a copy of God's Word because you love God's Word and you read God's Word. And so whether that's on your phone or your tablet or a bound uh, copy or codex, whatever you have this morning, open it up to Genesis 1 because the Bible begins with God creating not just an individual, but a family. Male and female, husband and wife in his image, and he gives them instructions to fill the earth. Look with me at Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so we see that God's revealed plan and desires pre-fall are for man and woman to be united and to reproduce. So we see biblically that marriage and kids are established in the first chapter of God's word. God establishes the family unit. And so do we understand that God's desire is for his creation to join together in marriage and to reproduce? And I believe that I, for much of my life, failed to comprehend this. And I'll just be honest with you, I failed to comprehend this and it resulted in me having kids later in life and thus we had fewer children and thus the impact, the imprint of a spiritual legacy was diminished because I didn't fully comprehend the impact and the responsibility to fill the earth with children. And so we, as Protestants, as Southern Baptists, oftentimes we look down at large families and think, what are they thinking? Instead of praise the Lord, look how many arrows are being shot out by that family. And so we have to change our mindset based upon God's word, not based upon our pocketbooks. And so we see there that the fall results, right, in Genesis 3. And so Larry, you might uh, skip ahead to a couple uh, slides there to the fall. But we see that the fall, Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, right, it's just a couple verses over that the fall happens. And Adam and Eve, the first family, choose sin over the promises of God and the result is of eternal significance for all mankind. Right, so we see that God creates a family, right? He doesn't just create an individual. And we, I'd really like to dive into the fact that God as a trinity, right? He has a, a familial relationship with himself, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so that impacts how he creates. He doesn't create just one individual. He creates man and from man, he creates woman. And he says, come together. You're not to be with other things. You come together, you reproduce and you fill the earth. You subdue it and you have dominion over it. That is his intentions. But we see just a few verses later in chapter 3 in Genesis that the fall, that Adam and Eve as a family, right? Satan comes after the family and he destroys, right? They choose sin over God's plan and God's desires. The family unit is involved in this cosmic rebellion and thus, as Paul explains in Romans 5.12, that sin and death have spread to all men because all sinned. But praise the Lord, God doesn't leave us in our sin, right? God redeems families. 
The Bible from chapter 3 of Genesis through the Gospels is about the rescue plan of God and his family. As the Bible lays out the rescue plan of Jesus for all who are under the curse of sin, the reader of the Bible is confronted with families from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We see Noah and we see Abraham. We see the Philippian jailer, right? We see cover to cover. We see families being involved in the rescue plan of Christ. We see that, that the, uh, the gospel and the apostle or the uh, epistle letter writers, right? They use familial language, right? We see that um, heightened in Ephesians 5 where Paul, uh, describes the, the mystery of salvation linking it to the way husbands are to love their wives, right? And so we see that Christ is about family. Matthew 28, 18 and 20, often referred to as the Great Commission, puts the emphasis on making disciples within and through the local church. And so we see that, that the family has always been a, a, a key. We see that, right? The Great Commission builds upon the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, where the emphasis is on the family. And so we see that in the Old Testament, when God is creating and establishing his covenant people, and he, he calls them out in Deuteronomy 6, and we'll look more in detail at this passage here in a minute, we see that he establishes the family unit of utmost importance. When we get into the New Testament and we see that Christ establishes his church, we see that he does not do away with the family, but he uh, accentuates it, right? Look at um, in Mark 12, right? Mark 12, 28 and 30, we see that Jesus references back to the, the, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 when he is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he answers this in Mark 12, 28 and 30, he says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. We'll see those words again here in a minute when we look at Deuteronomy 6. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You see, Jesus is never putting down on the family. He is making much of the family. And I wonder today, are we making much of the family or are we just falling along with the stream that we live in of what it says about the family? We see that God's pursuit of the redemption of his family leads to the church and the church points us to glory consummation, right? The point at which something is made complete. And the consummation of all this is displayed in Revelation 7. We heard John reference this in the prayer this morning. And the worship of God in heaven by the family of God made up of peoples of all time, places, language, and ethnicity. What a, what a truth that we need to claim to and that we as gospel people need to proclaim with clarity in our day and in our age, in our families and in all that we do. Revelation 7, verse 9, I just have to read this. And after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, 
standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. That's what we're looking forward to. Amen? That's what we're looking forward to. And we're going to talk about that here in just a minute of where is our focus and where is our aim. But we understand, we've got to understand the gospel message, right? We've got to understand what Christ is talking about, why God has written his word to us, that we were dead in our trespasses, but he so loved us that he sent his son, right, familial language, to die and to rescue us so that we could have everlasting life with him forever. His glory is on display in and through the family. Are we making much of Christ in our families? The biblical meta-narrative depicts the importance of the family. And who is better able to discern the condition of their children's hearts and to know if true repentance has occurred than those who live with them every day? You see, the church being established in the New Testament is never to diminish or undermine the family unit. The idolatry that runs rampant in our hearts can cause us to fall asleep to the things of God and the work he desires to do in and through us. Instead, the family heritage is to be strengthened by the local church and the gospel ministry. As a church, we should strengthen families. And that's why it's important that though you may not have any more family siblings, right, you may not be raising a family, this message is for you, it's for all of us. Because the church is to be a family, right, as we're a gathered people, right, our individual families come together corporately to engage with one another, to help one another, to learn from one another. And so are we helping others in our families. The gospel is not to be rehearsed. The gospel is to be rehearsed in our homes and reinforced in our churches so that it can be revealed to the world. Let that quote by Timothy Paul Jones set in. Let that sink in that you and I, through our families, are articulating the gospel to the world. How? are we doing with that? So that's the truth. Point two is identity. Where we have been and where we are going. As believers, we are in the family of God and we have been given families. We're going to look at how ministry has been done and ultimately how we think it should be done moving forward here at Beaverdam. Right? So the Bible makes much of the family and specifically children. Look with me at Matthew 19, verse 4, right? A familiar passage in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 19, 14, where Jesus says, But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. From a biblical perspective, children are not to be marginalized, they're not to be marginalized. However, within the annals of our history, this has not always been the case, right? Just in, a, in America, Christians have been trying to faithfully live according to the word of God on American soil since before this great nation was founded. From the birth of this nation, children have gone through several classifications. The term adolescence was not officially coined until the beginning of the 20th century, 
And we know that with the Industrial Revolution, that, that families and children were greatly impacted. It changed everything. It was a game changer. And so we, we see that, that as America grew and as we became more of a, an industrialized nation, that sadly, children began to be marginalized. They began to, to move outside the family. Because after the, the, the Great Depression and World War II, we see that, that money was more prevalent, that resources were more uh, available, technology was improving. And so kids began to move outside the home and go and do and not be a part of their nuclear family unit. And so this had great implications to the church right because the church sadly failed to pick up on this the church sadly just kind of went along with things and didn't didn't coincide with with the realities and the problems and so that's why we today have to be have our ear to the ground and understand what's going on in society but we don't react to society we react with society with God's word and so we we engage from a biblical perspective and so, sadly, we saw parachurch ministries began to reach teenagers in the, in the middle 20th century. And then in the late 20th century, we saw churches begin to try to catch up, right, with professionalized youth pastors and, and children's ministers and pastors. We began to see churches try to, to gain ground where parachurch ministries had, had been leading the way. And, and sadly, we, we were behind the eight ball. And in many regards, we're still trying to catch up even today. And so do we understand the role and the importance that we as a church have in reaching the next generation? I believe that this church does that. I believe we, we see the need for that. And I, this is just my own little story here for just a second, right? Like you, many of you know that, that I served as a youth pastor here for like 13 years and I love my job. But, but I began to come to a, um, a crossroads in my own personal life serving as a student pastor because I began to understand that not intentionally, but kind of subvertly, I was in my mind separating children from their families. And so I believe a, um, a decorated uh, youth professional said it well. He said that parents not only outsource their spiritual training of their kids to the church, but the church outsources it to a professional youth pastor. And that's, that's never been the desire, I don't believe, of this church or of me for sure, but I think we fell into that trap. And so trying to aid and assist families, I think that we, like many other churches, have said, if you'll just bring them to us, we'll take care of them and you, you'll be okay. And that is not God's plan in any of his scriptures. And so we, as a church, have to recalibrate, not on our tradition, but on God's word. And so this idea and this thought hit home to me when I began to have children. And so began to think and evaluate what does God's word say and how can we be helpful? And so I believe, um, and I just want to lay this out for you, and I know some of this is kind of academic at some level, but I, I want to, to give a, um, a vision for where we want to go as a church so that you know where we want to go. And prayerfully, you want to go with us. 
right? And so I believe that there are four models or four options of um, ministry um, that, uh, that, we, that we see. And so I apologize, Larry, I'm all over the place, um, but uh, he's done a great job. Um, we, um, we see four models, and the first model is a programmatic ministry model. And this leads to, to silo ministry, right? We're just about programs, right? And we see that in our days. We got, you could just pull up the website. I don't pull up other churches' websites to so stay here. But if you did, you would see there's all kinds of programs that churches offer. And that sounds good, right? But it's just about programs. And so if you look like this and fit like this and smell like this, and you go over here and you do this, right? And it leads to silo-type ministry. The other three model of ministry are more family-based. And so a family-based ministry model, a church's programmatic structure remains unchanged. But each separate ministry plans and programs in ways that intentionally draw generations together and encourage parents to take part in the discipleship of their children and youth. And so I believe that, that we were and we've been kind of programmatic and somewhat um, family-based. Like my desire as student pastor was never to, to remove parents from their uh, position as key and head of spiritual development for their family. But unintentionally, I feel like the things I said and did aired that way. And I apologize for that. That was wrong of me. Where I desire for us to be is number, the third ministry model is the family equipping ministry model. A family equipping ministry model is though, although there are age organized programs and events, the church is completely restructured to draw, to draw generations together, equipping parents and championing their role as primary disciple makers and holding them accountable to fulfill this role. And so that's, that's where we would like to be. And so you see there the, the screen on the, um, the slide on the screen says that we have great resources, right? Um, and so with great resources comes great responsibility. And so we have, um, we have God's word, which is enough, but we also have highly educated men and women. We have um, a tradition that is rich and is um, robust. And so we build all those things and we apply those things to what we know to be true, and that's God's word. And so we want to move to be more of a family equipping ministry. And so we want to do that. And we believe that there are three things that um, are laid out to best articulate Jesus's call in Matthew's gospel to disciple. And that's to discover, to develop, and to deploy. And so we want to discover, develop, and deploy. That's what we want to do with individuals and with families. Right, And so as families, that's what you're doing, right? As the um, great Puritans would say, that each church or each family is its own little church, right? And so we want to help you do that. And so we at Beaverdam are striving to move toward being a family-equipping church. And that means that as a family-equipping church, we retain some age-organized uh, ministries, but we restructure the congregation to partner with parents and at every level of ministry so that parents are acknowledged, they're equipped, and they're held accountable for the discipleship of their children. And so that's not just the family pastor's job, that's everyone's job, that we help families, we partner with them because our goal is discipleship through 
partnership. And it will take all of us pitching in, right? This isn't just another program. It's a, it's a mindset of how to apply God's word. And so we want to be intentional to try to help parents be the disciple makers God clearly lays out in his word for them to be. So point three is equipping. Why are we moving toward family equipping ministry, right? And so we want to just look at this uh, from Deuteronomy chapter six, right? Deuteronomy six, look with that in God's word with me. Deuteronomy six, I'm gonna read verses one to nine. Um, and I want to try to help us understand this, all right? Deuteronomy six, one to nine. It's a familiar text for many of us, um, but in case you've never heard it, I want us to read it together. Now this is the commandment and the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commands me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all the statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. In a land flowing of milk and honey. Here's a Shema in, in verse 4. Hear, right? That's the Hebrew word for uh, Shema. Hear, O Israel. Listen. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Remember that sounds familiar. Didn't Jesus say that, right? And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and you shall be as a frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Friends, the time has come that we at BDBC reform some of our practices and strategies as a church. The time has come that followers of Christ are held responsible for the teachings of Christ. People at all levels and all ages must begin to read and apply the word of God to their lives. This begins by intentionally communicating and expecting individuals to read their Bible daily. The church should be a gathering place for those said believers and the place of accountability for living according to the sacred scriptures. Since we cannot insulate children from all malign influences, it is essential that we prepare them to deal responsibly with the pressures and the choices they face. Jesus did not live in a vacuum, nor should we today, in our context, live in a vacuum. Doctrinally thin, ethically tolerant, and consumer-oriented, many churches have lost their passions for the hard sayings of the Christian gospel. Thus, Wayne Rice is correct when he says that what we now know is that teenagers pretty much follow the, foot, the footsteps of their parents. This is convicting and at the same time encouraging. Right? Do we understand as parents we have the opportunity to make disciples? Are we seeing our families as a means to that end? We as individuals and churches have gotten away from God's word. And so I, I wanted to share a few uh, statistics with you, right? Because I believe God's word is clear that the family is important. 
And so some of you are more, um, I don't know, maybe you want to be more pragmatic about it, right? And so I want to share some statistics from you from this study, and you can check this book out, you can order it from Amazon, um, but nothing less, Engaging Kids in a Lifetime of Faith by Jana Magruder. It's a great resource and has eye-opening statistics, and I'm just going to share some statistics from this uh, study that, that they did that was very intense and, um, and relevant for us. You see there, 96% of parents agree they consistently want to be better parents. 96%. Parents want to be good parents, right? That's, that doesn't matter if you're a Christian, you're a Muslim, you're an atheist. You want to be a good parent, mostly, right? 96%, not 100%, but 96%. There is a desire by almost all parents to be good parents. But I wonder for us this morning, what is a good parent? How would you define a good parent. For those of you that are single, what does it mean to be a good parent? Are you thinking about these things as a single? Because if you're single and you want to be a good parent, that will influence the individuals that you marry. And if it's going to influence the people that you marry, it's definitely going to influence the people that you date, how you date, when you date, why you date. So see, it, it all ties together. This is relevant for all of us. Jana and her team discovered that most Americans agree what is mandatory to be a good mom or dad. And so there's going to be a graphic up here, and I know you can't see that. I knew you wouldn't be able to see it uh, even as I put it on my computer screen. But from top to bottom, 1 through 16, I'm just going to read them for you real quickly. Uh, This is what parents said uh, is helpful to being a good mom and dad. Number one, loving. Two, supporting, protecting, encouraging, understanding, involved, trusting, teaching, tender, providing, consistent, fun, admitting mistakes, generous, religious, and number 16, committed Christian. So we see these 16 characteristics of a good parent. However, look at this stat on the screen. Only 29% of born-again Christians state that their personal faith plays the most significant role in their approach to parenting. That's not Americans, that's born-again believers. Those who would say they were born again, which is less than a third. Less than a third. Which begs me to ask, does your faith make a difference in your parenting? Does it make the most significant impact on your parenting? Does your faith? Just a quick test, right? When faced with a parenting decision, why do you say yes or why do you say no, right? Just A, what would Jesus do? I know it's kind of a trite saying, but I think it, it communicates. What would Jesus do? Is that, the, is that what runs through your mind before you make a parenting decision? Or do you B, make a decision based on money? Or C, what will your friends do? Or what will your child's friends do? Or D, what is easiest? You know, I've not been a parent as long as many of you have been. But sadly, D creeps up there way too often. It's taxing. It's nonstop. But as parents, the parent by the book, we've got to be different. We've got to be different because our God has called us to a life of being different. Isolating our parenting from our faith is not a biblical ideal. We see in 2 Timothy 3, verses 13 to 17, where Paul is encouraging Timothy to keep the faith that he learned from a young age and allow it to influence, allowing the scripture to give wisdom. 
Sadly, there's no father figure mentioned in that passage, but we see that there is a familial relationship and we see that the faith is passed along. And so are we passing along the faith? Children lack the ability to abstractly connect things until late in adolescence. Thus, we as parents of young children must connect dots concretely and succinctly as best and often as possible. I need the church holding me accountable to this. I need this help. And I, I just, I don't like to think I'm that much different than you guys, but I know if I need this help, I gotta believe that other moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters, we need the church. We need the help. We need the accountability. Even if we think accountability is a rotten, nasty, uh, satanic word, which it's not, by the way, we need it. We need it. Another question we might ask ourselves in order to identify what influences us is where do Christians go for parenting advice? You see on the, on the slide there, which once again, you may not be able to see it, but the church and the Bible rank low on the list of where Americans look for parenting advice. Where do they look? Well, 77% of parents surveyed identified themselves as Christians, which we could question that, but we'll just say it is what it is. Yet only 14% are very familiar with what the Bible says about parenting. As you saw with the previous graphic, 91% look to their parents, but only 46% look to the Bible for parenting advice. Guys, I've, I had incredible parents. I still have an incredible parent. But can I tell you, they are pathetic when it comes to God's word. If all I'm trying to do is emulate and replicate the things my parents did, which they did a lot of great things, but that shouldn't be the focus, that shouldn't be my number one focus. As a Christian, my focus isn't to, to reproduce what my God-fearing parents did. My focus should be to go to the one whom they worshiped and adored and follow his guidelines. Are we following the word or are we merely learning from our experiences and practicing what we were accustomed to, right? And so I'm not saying those things are all bad. I'm just saying they shouldn't be our number one focus, our number one authority. Do you parent with the end in mind? We talked about glory and we talked about the fact that God is making all things new and there will be a time for those of us in Christ where we will be made new. And I wonder, are we parenting with the end in mind? And not just glory, but are you parenting as though your kids are going to grow up and leave your home? And what do you want them to be when they leave your home? Do you want them just to be successful financially? Do you want them to be popular? Do you want them to be married? Or do you want them to know the Lord, to fear him, to walk in humble obedience to his statutes and his rules and his way of living? Is that our plan and our desire? I was talking with some friends recently and we were talking about the reality that, that most parents inside the church, if we can get our children into those baptismal waters, we think we've, we've hit the jackpot. Whew, I'm done. I don't have to worry about them anymore. Friends, that can't be our attitude. There's a lot of people that have gotten wet in waters just like those that are no more a follower of Christ than the person driving down the road right now, headed to wherever. 
Friends, we must always be instilling. I need to be taught, even as a 40-year-old, I need to hear from my mother and be instructed to be guided, to be, to be taught, to be rebuked, to be encouraged. So grandparents, aunts, uncles, don't give up. Don't, don't, whew, okay, I'm done. I'll teach them anymore. They, they, they said yes to Jesus. No, we must always be about training in the Lord. All right, um, we're running out of time. Um, sadly, as Christians, we don't define the meaning of life all that differently than most Americans. But we as a church want to help you, the parent. We don't want to replace you. That means helping you personally and also helping your kids. But we don't want to merely be a place where your kids learn manners or even how to sing on pitch. We want to see families glorifying the Heavenly Father in word, deed, and circumstances. And so we do believe that the Bible makes the biggest impact. We believe that the Bible makes the biggest impact. The statistics of this study show that. We know that to be true. And so we must have God's word. We must read it. We must model that for our children. We must get them Bibles that they can read. We must teach them to read by God's word so that they can understand God's word, so that they can fall in love with the God whom we love and adore. And so this, my, my last point, uh, point four is steps. Steps, practical steps BDBC is taking to get to becoming family equipping. All right, Proverbs 22, six, which is a proverb, tells us train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Remember, it's a proverb, not a promise, but it's still God's word. So discovering that the Bible is the biggest statistical determining factor should bring relief to us as parents because we don't have to be the smartest or even the most spiritually mature to produce spiritual dots. God, via his word, discovers, develops, and deploys his people. Isn't that an amazing fact? Doesn't that, to me, that gives me, to know that I, it's not up to me, right? Like we, I know we talked a lot that I have a role to play, but ultimately God, by his word. So if I, though weak and flawed and all kinds of issues, Scott Hood, if I get my kids in God's word, God, by his Holy Spirit, will capture their head, their heart, their faculties by his word. And so am I pushing them? Am I dragging them? Am I encouraging them in the word of God? The word of God is supremely important. We at Beaverdam want to get better. We, we want to not condemn individuals and families, but instead we want to aid and assist families. Listen, friends, none of us have it figured out. I definitely don't have it figured out. I can speak for the other hooligans on staff. They don't have it figured out, right? But we're trying as best we can by God's word to live obediently. And that's why it takes a gathered body to help with that because we're all stronger and weaker in different areas and we need each other. We need open lines of communication, speaking and, and learning from one another. And so are you desiring to be the man, the woman, the family, the follower that Christ calls you and desires for you to be? So we've done some things uh, and I'm just gonna go off script. Don't worry about the slides, Larry. Um, 
But we, we've done some things in the last few um, months and years to try to help that. And so one of the things was we tried to get in a, in a daily Bible reading plan. And so we're going to talk more about that as I, as I close in just a few moments. But reading God's word on a regular basis. I need that. You need that. Your children need to read God's word regularly. We've also tried to incorporate our Sunday school curriculum. We've birthed through more mature people. Um, We have consolidated and we're all doing a biblical theology and we're trying to look at the entire scope of God's word and how it points to Jesus and what we can learn and discover in this context in real time in a real place from God's word. And it's been amazing. Teachers, we're, we're trying to make a, a, a more specific uh, initiative on teachers to teach from God's word, not from a quarterly. We're trying to uh, have real conversations in public and in private to say, hey, what are you reading in God's word? Right, to just cue you in that, hey, we're expecting you to read God's word. So what have you been reading, right? Uh, and so we've been doing some different things and, and we still will have programs. We're still gonna have, hopefully, prayerfully, we're looking forward to opening up things next Sunday with Sunday school and children's church and those different things. We're gonna have summer nights. In the fall, we're gonna start back up. Our, our cubbies on the first floor and our kids ministry on the second floor and our students on the third floor. We're hopefully soon gonna be hiring a new student pastor. Uh, and so we've, we've got a lot of things cooking and shaking and going and, and we want you to be a part of those things. But I'm here to tell you that we as a church We want to equip you. We want to do a better job of giving you tangible help in the the trenches of life. And so if if you're struggling, don't just drown. Throw a hand up, wave, scream, send an email, send a text. Let us know, hey, I need help. I need help. I don't know how to read God's word. I don't know, my kid's asking questions about the faith. I don't know how to lead them to Christ. We'd love to help you do that because my desire is that ultimately we're never leading as a staff, we're not leading individuals to Christ, but families are leading people to Christ. And we just get to stand up here and celebrate and high five you as families and dunk your kids and say, man, this is awesome testimony of how God is working in and through families. And so if you need help, let us know. We would love to help you in in the specific ways you need help. Okay, because once again, we don't have it all figured out. And there may be things that you're seeing and like, hey, Hood, you're not doing this, you need to be doing that. Hey, let me know. I need it. We all need help. So my question is this, in closing, nothing less than the whole Bible can make a whole Christian. And so I wonder, are we looking to God's word to be our God, to be our aim, to be our source as we do this thing called life? Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you are one. Holy Spirit, lead us as individuals and families to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and with all our souls and with all our mind. By constantly meditating upon the word that you have graciously given to us. Might we teach the truths of scripture diligently to our children, in our homes, as we drive down the road, as we wake, and as we lie down at night. Might the word lead us to be the church you have called us to be. For your glory, we ask and seek these petitions. Amen. Amen. Aaron is going to come, and he's going to lead us in a song, in a time of response. And we want to encourage you to to respond as the Holy Spirit 
uh, leads and guides you. So Aaron, you lead us and we'll respond.